Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Phenomenal. See, this difference between Black Star Network and Black-owned media and something like CNN. You can't be Black-owned media and be scared. It's time to be smart. Bring your eyeballs home. You dig? Thursday, February 17, 2022. I'm Reese Colbert sitting in for Roland as he's celebrating Liberia's bicentennial. Here's what's coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered, streaming live on the Black Star Network. Tonight, we are looking at the economic progress and socioeconomic barriers facing Black Americans. We'll be breaking down the Congressional Black Caucus report, showing how Blacks experience far worse economic conditions than white Americans and the population as a whole. Former Stockton, California Mayor Michael Tubbs launches a nonprofit with programs to reduce poverty. He'll be here to share those ideas and what other cities can do to help reduce the number of people living in poverty. And with inflation, there's a push to increase the minimum wage again to $18. We'll look at what's happening in California to put more money in workers' pockets. In Texas, the Young Black Lawyers Organization Organizing Coalition is challenging the state's voter suppression law. The founder and chief strategist of the organization will join us to let us know what's next now they have filed the lawsuit. A Pennsylvania state representative running for U.S. Senate is looking to beat out at least a dozen, a dozen others vying for the same seat. He's here to tell us why he's the best candidate. The International Olympic Committee says Shakari Richardson is wrong. There's no comparison between U.S. track star and Russian figure skater Kamila Vanleva over their doping scandals. Our very own Erica Savage-Wilson is making a comeback. She'll be here to give us an update on her Reframed Brain podcast. We'll have all of this and more. It's time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered, streaming live on the Black Star Network. Let's go. He's got it, whatever the miss, he's on it. 
History Month, the Congressional Black Caucus releases a report on economic trends and barriers on black Americans. The report details the advancement African Americans have made over the years. It also highlights some key disparities still plaguing the community. Like black child poverty rates have been cut by nearly half since the 1980s. Black adults have, with college degrees have more than doubled since 1990. The black-right racial gap in high school graduation has nearly disappeared. And despite the rise in those numbers, the report revealed the disparities between black and white people are still significantly large. Like, white households have eight times the wealth of black households. Black households earn just 62 cents for every dollar earned by white households. Black Americans have consistently experienced unemployment rates nearly twice that of white Americans. Let's go to the panel. Joining us tonight are Dr. Avis Jones-DeWeaver, political analyst, Dr. Greg Carr, Department of Afro-American Studies of Howard University, and uh, host of The Black Table, and Terrain Walker, founder of Context Media. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Good to see you, Reese. <laughs> Okay, let's start off with you, Dr. Carr, because you are the expert in all of these things. Um, these statistics are unsurprising. I think we do have to recognize that we have made progress, but there's still a long ways to go. Uh, what is just your first reaction to the disparities that still persist, particularly in the areas of, of, of wealth and house home ownership? Uh, well, two things come to mind. Uh, one is uh, an old professor of mine, Anson Thompson, used to call this death watch studies. Hmm. In other words, we getting killed, and every once in a while we'll pause to see how many got killed since the last time we counted how many got killed. Hmm. There was absolutely nothing new in any of this, and, and having read through the report, I didn't see any solutions proposed. Uh, and the second thing is that it would be difficult to propose solutions to problems which are part of a larger field of violence called capitalism. Hmm. So the section on union membership, for example, we know union membership has cratered in part because of the push from finance capital. Everybody from Amazon and Walmart, they're anti-union. We know that child poverty rates may have declined slightly, but part of that is because the way that child poverty is calculated in this country doesn't really reflect child poverty. And we know that home ownership uh, we are subject uh, to the vagaries of the market, and whether it be the mortgage crisis of 2008 and, and coming forward. You know, anything that's going to happen to this economy is going to happen to us first. So, again, not really surprised by any any of the, the data that we received in this report. 
Now, Terrain, one of the areas that we have seen improvement is in the area of education in terms of closing some of that gap or significantly closing the gap in high school uh, graduation as well as in degrees. Do you consider that something to celebrate or do you think that that's just a drop in the bucket of all of the other news that we received through this report? Well, I think it's good on the surface, you know, from a cosmetic point of view, you know, the fact that there are more um, African-Americans graduating college and getting their high school diplomas is an important thing. But I think we, what you have to pay attention to is what happens after you leave school, what opportunities are there once you get that diploma and you get that degree. And according to this data and according to these stats, the data, the, um, there's not a lot of opportunity for African-Americans once you leave. If you go into a system that, regardless of whatever your educational background is, does not have opportunities laid out for you, or there's no pipeline to take you from education and from the academy into the workforce or even into entrepreneurship, all it's really doing is just putting a Band-Aid on top of something that's still a very serious issue. You're absolutely right. I mean, the reality is that education is one of those few areas that is relatively universal. I mean, we have free education in this country, and we know that as black folks, we prioritize getting educated, and that's something that we can do regardless of our socioeconomic status. Uh, Dr. Carr, do you see a correlation here in the fact that we are making progress in education and things like the HBCU bomb threats that are increasing with each week and the threat that people seem to feel just by the presence of black people being educated? Well, sure, uh, absolutely, uh, absolutely, Reese. In this, in this respect, the, as you say, the symbol of education and its connection with black aspiration is a direct threat to those who find value in preserving this mythical notion of whiteness. So the idea of black progress, which isn't a zero-sum game, mm -hmm. uh, is something that frightens folk who say, well, they're going to be competing with me. Uh, you know, I don't necessarily look at it as an advancement in black education as much as I look at it as a country that has an investment in public education that will kind of have a nominal return on investment that would increase everybody's um, uh, ability to go to school, particularly when public education is compulsory. So with, with that in mind, I think you're absolutely right. There is a correlation, and the correlation is more psychic, more emotional, more cultural than it is uh, anything that could be reduced to, to kind of a material data to be, to be analyzed. Right. In terrain, you know, one of the statistics that's mentioned in this report is that the, um, the life expectancy for black Americans, where it was actually getting a little bit lower, our, the gap between the life expectancy for black Americans versus white Americans was lowering prior to COVID. But now we see that gap widening once again. Uh, do you think that, you know, in terms of the kinds of initiatives that we're seeing around mask mandates and vaccines and the COVID response, do you think that that's really important to evaluate the lens of inequities that black Americans are facing when they're making policy decisions? Well, I think COVID really just um, brought to light the serious disparities that there are in healthcare between African-Americans and other um, populations in this country. Unfortunately, um, African-Americans are at the uh, near bottom of being served by, um, health, by, by the healthcare industry and also by um, going to the doctor and getting regular checkups and that sort of thing. And we can go into the history of why that is, about why so many African-Americans have a fear of going into the doctor and getting regular checkups, either financially or because of the history of medical um, apartheid in this country. So I think what happened with COVID was um, COVID already um, put a strain on an already swamped medical system in this country. 
So black people, unfortunately, were going to be going to bear the brunt of that when they could barely go in the first place. So I think COVID just really, again, exacerbated that. And unfortunately, um, until there's some sort of serious outreach or there's some sort of policy put in place to try to um, elevate the health disparities and the health um, outcomes of African-Americans, this is going to continue, unfortunately. Absolutely. I mean, we have seen some initiatives in terms of like the COVID racial and ethnic disparities task force that was formed by the Biden-Harris administration. And there have been some outreach in terms of vaccines. And there's been an increase in people who are um, insured throughout this pandemic because of the different various relief packages that have passed. But there's still so much more to do. Uh, another area is black maternal mortality, which is something where black America, black women are three times more likely to die during childbirth than white women are. And even if you look at uh, mortality, in black infant mortality um, has dismal statistics and just the mere presence of a black doctor makes black children more black infants more likely to survive childbirth. That should not be a thing in this country. And that is irrespective of socioeconomic backgrounds. That's a race issue. Last comment on this, um, Dr. Carr's, one of the things that we consistently see persist is unemployment. And uh, the unemployment rate for black folks continues to be double that of white Americans. And one of the things identified in this support is that child care uh, the cost of that is a barrier to entry for some black Americans in terms of getting uh, a job um, or ever entering the workforce. We have seen initiatives from the administration are put forth by the Democrats to lower the cost of child care, but it has stalled in Congress. So how do we make progress without, you know, the, the federal government in terms of the, the various branches of government coming forward and, and doing something about this? That's a good question, Reese. I think in, in, in the conversation you're going to have with the former uh, the mayor who's now working on the, the nonprofit in California, I think will go away toward helping to answer that. I think one of the strengths of this report is the uh, final uh, part of the report where they break down the data by states. Mm -hmm. I think this is going to require local and state intervention. Uh, when you say, for example, in the report that 38 percent of uh, black folk say that uh, cost is the main barrier to finding child care compared to 27 percent of white folk the question then becomes how do you disaggregate that data at the state level because so many of our people are trapped in the white nationalist rule south and we need to break those state legislators state legislatures we need to focus on the cities uh, from atlanta to jackson mississippi to nashville tennessee to new orleans to begin to put policymakers in place that can address this at the state and local level finally you know the report reiterated the fact that while we may see progress in some of these areas the gaps between black and white folk remain virtually unchanged as we said i mean you know 41.3 percent of white people have college uh, degrees versus 28.1% of black people. Now, that number has gone up steadily since the 1970s for black people, but it still remains the same gap between black and white people. What does that tell us and how does that affect policy? Finally, I think it comes down to this. Whiteness is still the barometer by which policy is made, and the federal government's role is to intervene on behalf of those who are disadvantaged. So while we're working at the state and local level, what we need now is federal policymakers who can enhance that state and local efforts and, and be very surgical about where they can put pressure for the best result. But it's going to have to be state and local, and I think this report does a good job of disaggregating that data so we can at least see what we're dealing with. Yeah, you point out exactly a huge point, which is that 
the states is really where we can make the most change because black people are not universally spread throughout this country. There ain't that many of us in Montana. But when you have <laughs> elections like what's happening in Georgia and Stacey Abrams, that's going to be a transformative, uh, you know, governorship as opposed to what we have with Brian Kemp. We are also going to be talking later with uh, State Representative Malcolm Kenyatta in Pennsylvania. That's a key Senate seat that can help make Joe Manchin irrelevant or Kristen Sinema irrelevant if we were to win that seat. But speaking of state action, with that report in mind, a former California mayor is doing what he can to combat poverty with his nonprofit organization, In Poverty in California, or EPIC. His organization focuses on ongoing poverty issues by creating a minimum wealth floor and overhauling the state's social safety nets. Currently, California has one of the highest poverty rates in the country. According to the U.S. Census, 15.4% of California residents live in poverty from 2000, lived in poverty from 2018 to 2020. Michael Tubbs, founder of In Poverty in California, joins us from Los Angeles. Hey, Michael, how you doing? All right, first, let me say I am so excited and proud of you. This is such a big day. Thanks for having me. It's I, was, I, I got to watch the last segment. I was like, look at Reese. She hosted. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks. You know, you're my boy. You're my buddy. You're my buddy. Um, so we actually have so much to talk about. We just had this discussion about the CBC report and the not promising statistics that we're seeing. You're actually a person that not only has been on the side of making policy changes and implementing transformative policies as mayor, but now that you are no longer mayor, you are still in the trenches really moving it forward, not just within California, but nationally, like with your mayors for a guaranteed income. So before we talk about California specifically, tell us a little bit about your mayors for a guaranteed income uh, initiative. Yeah, so in 2017, when I was still mayor of Stockton, we announced that we were going to do a basic income pilot, really rooted in the civil rights tradition and the National Welfare Organization, a group of black women who influenced Dr. King and got Dr. King to really adopt basic income as a, as a key way of, of ending poverty and, and bring us closer to a, a racially just society. And we announced this before the presidential campaign, so this is before sort of Andrew Yang and before a lot of other people were talking about the guaranteed income. And it's been amazing to see how five years later, we now have 63 mayors who are a part of mayors for guaranteed income. We have 23 pilots from cities like Jackson, Mississippi, um, which was led by a phenomenal black woman at, at the, with the organization called the Magnolia's Mothers Trust, which is focused on giving basic income dollars to black mothers and, and black mothers on welfare in particular to really combat welfare queen tropes. Um, to St. Paul, Minnesota, to Los Angeles, Long Beach, Compton, to Madison, Wisconsin. Just recently, last week, Louisville, Kentucky is doing a pilot. So it's been interesting to see how the idea went from a, a crazy one to one that's really in vogue and one, again, that's really rooted in how do we use this opportunity of COVID-19 to actually deal with longstanding structural issues, but using this crisis as a chance to be bigger and bolder and, and more imaginative in terms of how this our government and our economy can actually work for everyone? Yes, you gave me so much to respond to and so much to chew on, but I have to put you on hold for just a moment because Roland Martin, the man, is joining us live from Liberia. Hey, Roro, how's Liberia hey, treating what's you? What's going on? Can you hear me? We can hear you. Yeah, it, uh, things are going uh, great. Uh, it has been an unbelievable busy day. 
we, of course, today had uh, sat down with the Liberian CEO. Yesterday, of course, in time, Monrovia City Hall. Tomorrow, I'm actually sitting down with Alex Cummings, uh, former um, top executive at Coca-Cola, who's actually part of the opposition party who's running for president next year. Uh, we've got a, a, several tours that are set up uh, for um, Saturday uh, that will be actually live streaming uh, and covering. And then uh, Sunday or early Monday, I'll be sitting down uh, with Liberian President George Bia. Uh So it, it's, it's been very interesting. You're talking about a country that's uh, so just some, just the facts have been just unbelievable. You're talking about a nation of 5 million people. But the problem is here in Monrovia, 1.5 million people live in the city, even though it was only built to accommodate 300,000 people. Mm. Then uh, the, the age, the median age in this country is, is also unbelievable. Uh, the average age is, the median age is 19.4. Wow. Uh, so it's, it's, it's an extremely young country. Uh, and and as, as Greg, uh, you know, uh, uh, knows all too well, uh, you know, Liberia was the crown jewel. Uh, of Africa, uh, became the first republic in 1822. And then the pro problem is, uh, in this country, uh, the, um, it was the war in, in, in the coup in 1980, and it was in, in 1989 when the war took place. That lasted 15 years. So all of that progress, roads, bridges, schools, economy, all of that was pretty much destroyed for 15 years. I was just talking to uh, an alpha brother uh, who goes back and forth between Atlanta, Liberia, and Nigeria. He said the Nigerian war lasted three years. This lasted 15 years. Uh, so they really are, are, are desperate to rebuild the country. It's a country with its budget is only $700 million. I was with the Minister of Information yesterday. He was talking about a roads project that they have there where he said the roads project alone is $350 million. He said that's half our budget. Uh, and so it's, it's, a, it's a whole lot. Uh, that they are, are trying to do to rebuild uh, this country that has an amazing connection um, in, in that it is the only African nation with a direct connection to African-Americans. The only one. Uh, some some 12,000 African-Americans uh, came here in between a 30-year period. Uh, and so uh, it, it, it really has been, it's really been interesting as we have been traveling around and seeing what, 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 what could have been. I mean, just imagine if this country, if you think about Ghana being developed right now, if you think about Nigeria, you think about South Africa, Liberia literally was 50 years ahead of where those countries are today. Hmm. Imagine what this place would look like had that not happened, so. Really incredible, you know, coverage you're doing down there, Roland. And, you know, there was a huge push to get, you know, black people, African-Americans to go to Ghana. Are you seeing that kind of push with Liberia? Or is this something that you're hoping to spur with your trip and the coverage that you're doing down there for the bicentennial celebration? Well, it, it's, it's, it, this is a huge, is a huge difference. And, and in fact, I, I had a meeting. We're going to be uploading that meeting uh, very soon. Um, what I had with the Minister of Information. Um, remember, how you doing? Uh, remember, Ghana was very ahead. Ghana was planning that for three to four years. Hmm. Uh, you've not had that lead time in Liberia, and so they have been really doing things on the fly in terms of trying to promote the bicentennial. They, they would love to have the same effect uh, that uh, Ghana uh, received 
uh, but that was, but, but again, it, it comes down also to infrastructure. One of the things that Ghana did was, uh, versus applying for a visa, they did visa on arrival. They made it very easy. Uh, they also were drowning information. I told the Minister of Information and, and, and all of their media people, I said, look, you guys, what are you doing? You gotta be driving your information. I went on Twitter yesterday, uh, day before yesterday, and I, I typed in hashtag Liberia land of return. And what happened was that under top tweets, I had personally the top 20 tweets. Hmm. And I said, okay, where are your photos? Where are your videos? They said, well, most Liberians are on Facebook. I said, no, you're not posting for Liberians. You're posting for non-Liberians. I said, you guys can be pushing content to Instagram, to Twitter, to Facebook. I said, you need to be on uh, TikTok. I said, that's what you have to do. You got to build a resonance. Uh, you know, I've got Liberians who are following my coverage. I said, but you've got to be doing that on the president's page, on your country's page. Uh, and so it, it's a whole lot that, uh, that they actually have to do. Um, but I, I will tell you, uh, when, when you start studying the history, and uh, you know, I, uh, you know, of course, you know, before uh, we planned this trip, I had to hit Greg up uh, to look at the, any one of those uh, thirty-eight thousand books sitting behind him to say uh, what was the best books uh, on Liberia. And the thing that was interesting, um, again, was when, when you look at the history. I mean, the first president of Liberia from Norfolk, Virginia, the contingent of black people. Who can he was, and then then you had other presidents you know from Ohio. Uh, you got black folks who came from North Carolina, from Virginia, from Mississippi. Uh, and so what I also told the Liberian government, you should be doing bicentennial events in these American states to show the linkage. The Methodist Church was huge here as well. The first church was the Presbyterian Church. I said, you should be put, pulling them along and having them be a part of this as well. Uh, and yesterday, the deputy ambassador, um, and we live streamed this, he gave some remarks. They talked talking about creating essentially a, you know, like we have the civil rights um, uh, zones, if you will, the one in Atlanta, the one in Birmingham, uh, these, these cultural zones. So he, he talked about the idea of sort of creating something along those lines for Liberia. And uh, unbeknownst to me, they, they actually asked me to come up and speak. It wasn't planned. And I walked up there and I said, look, I appreciate the ideas of the deputy ambassador. I said, but I'm here for the money. <laughs> I said, so I, I said, so what y'all need to do? And I literally turned to the ambassador and turned to the mayor of Monrovia. I said, what you need to do is tell someone like me how much you need. I said, and so when the Congressional Black Caucus arrives on Sunday, you tell them. And when we go back, I said, we're going to amplify it, and we're going to say to Pelosi, to Schumer, uh, two members of Congress, uh, this is what is needed, uh, because there is a story. There is a story of, of people of African descent who came from America there in Liberia, and it's one hell of a story. Uh, and too many African Americans don't know what that story is. And so we all went to Ghana to reflect and touch upon all of those people of African descent who were placed on slave ships to come to America. But too many of us have no clue about the people of African descent who left America and who returned back to Africa. Well, I can't let this opportunity go by without letting Dr. Carr weigh in and, and ask you uh, about your trip in Liberia. Dr. Carr? Oh, oh thank you, Reese. It's good to see you, bro. Man. We, we've, all, we've all been watching, man. And, 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 and by the way, Greg, tomorrow night, 
right? Uh, the alphas are doing a reception for me. And the Minister of Information of Ghana is an alpha. So then they're doing a reception for me tomorrow night. We'll have that for you as well. So the brothers of Alpha Phi Alpha are fully represented here in Liberia. That's what I, I'm glad to hear that, man. Yeah, I've been watching, man, along with everybody else in the stadium. I love that blue number you had on the first day. <laughs> that, that that sky blue joint, and uh, of course watching uh, President Weah's speech there in the in the stadium of the bicentennial, and then watching that interesting panel on the economic future of Liberia, and my old professor, I saw uh, Malefia Sante gave the keynote. You know, y'all covered that, and then the Monrovia day that was interesting as well, and then of course you couldn't, I mean, watching you stop by uh, Joseph Roberts statue, man was re was really something. I, I, I guess oh you got connection. The uh, I guess if I had a question. It would be about what role do you see the United is the United States still interfering in the politics of Liberia? As you know, I mean, you know, well, like you said, mm -hmm. what, what what do you see there in terms of, of that, or or any any other country for that matter? Well, the uh, the three countries that have major embassies here in Liberia, here in Monrovia, United States, Mexico, and Germany. Um, that that was quite interesting. Um, what, what you have here is you have what you're seeing all across African continent, where you're seeing folks who are not from Liberia, who are starting businesses, uh, who are controlling a lot of the things, uh, you know, in this country. Uh, I had a great conversation today with Rima Fawaz, who is a CEO who owns multiple businesses. She talked about the need for skilled labor, for training. So there are, there, there, you know, I really saw, I really think there are opportunities for African Americans here, uh, but what we have to understand is you're also dealing with, uh, again, really poor infrastructure in terms of your roads. Only 20% of the country has electricity. Uh, and so one of the things that the, the, the president said in his speech on Monday is that he wanted them to be able to, um, you know, not just have everyone come to Monrovia, but build up the other cities uh, in the country. Well, the problem is you can't access them in a timely manner. In fact, where he's from, it's an eight-hour drive from Monrovia when it really should be a two, two and a half, three hour drive. So, um, and so you, you know how it goes when you talk about investment, you talk about putting money into a country, you know, they want a return on that investment and uh, many African nations have, been, nations have been held hostage by that. And so that's one of the things. And so, and so a lot of these, uh, these, these people who are entrepreneurs, they basically are money they get build a little bit more, get more money in, build a bit more. So they have, they have, there's no investment from the government. So really it's from them as individuals. So you have these forces. Uh, last point I'll make is this here, Firestone. Okay, Firestone gets oh, yeah. most of its rubber from Liberia. Firestone has never built a manufacturing plant here. So they take, they, so they, they have employees on, their, on the, their plantation, the rubber plantation, but they take the rubber and send it back to the United States last year. Uh, iron ore is the third, so the three biggest industries in Liberia, rubber, timber, iron ore. Last year was the first time ever that a steel plant was built here. So like so many African nations, other countries are, our businesses are taking the resources, but they're not actually doing job development in these countries. And that's one of the fundamental problems. I hate to hear that, brother. Yeah, there's a brand new book that just came out. I'm looking at it called Empire of Rubber. Firestone been running a criminal enterprise in Liberia forever, man. I'm really, I'm really disheartened to hear that they're still there in that 
fashion. And I'm surprised the Chinese are not there. You haven't seen the Chinese? Um, have not have not seen uh, have not seen the Chinese. No, uh, you're right. They have, they have been all over Africa, many uh, many other countries. Uh, you know, with, uh, uh, with their resources. Really, what you have here, you have uh, a number of Lebanese who are here, Indians who are here. Um, you got look, you got some folks who've been here, uh, you know, several decades. Uh, but that, that, that but that, but that's really what you have. And uh, in fact, we had uh, if y'all if y'all saw the Instagram post I made. Uh, you know, that was that was a uh, hotel and resort that Bob Johnson had opened here in Liberia when President Erwin Johnson's relief um, was there. Uh, and um, so we had lunch there. Uh, I mean, it was just sitting out there having dinner. Uh, the breeze was amazing, sitting by the ocean. Uh, but he sold it to a Ghanaian investor. Part of the problem, like like in the United States, like black businesses, COVID has had a tremendous impact and it slowed down so much. And many of these entrepreneurs have gone out of business and they're trying to make ends meet. And so uh, you've seen a lot of that take place as well. So you know, it, it, is, it, is a, it, is a, it is a nation that is trying to recover. Uh, but um, again, that, that, that civil war had such a huge impact economically on this country. And look, it's one million Liberians okay. in the United States. So think about that. 20% of the population Wait, you still there, Reese? You there? Yeah, I think we lost Roland. Um, but I'm here. I'm oh, here. Oh, you're back. Okay, great. I'm just looking, brother. Hey, I, I, look, we can talk. I mean, I know we got we got to get the mayor back. I'm just looking. Hey, man, this footage. Oh, yeah. I think oh, we look. lost the mayor. So, Roland, it's your show. <laughs> so, look, look, first of all, hit the first of all, hit, first of all, hit the mayor back and tell him my apologies. Uh, it's you gotta understand. It's 11:33 p.m. here. Uh, and literally, literally, we've been gone since 7 a.m. And so I said, hey, uh, I said, let me just pop on uh, just give you all some feedback uh, for this live hit because uh, we have to be back up uh, in seven hours uh, for because the, the, the mayor of Monrovia uh, wants to uh, present something to me uh, tomorrow morning. And essentially, she's the staff of the president of the country uh, to discuss my interview. So it's a. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's, it's a whole lot going on. I've been on a Liberian television and radio, uh, and so it's been uh, it's been a whirlwind. But uh, again, it's, it's been really great. Well, it's wonderful to have you on. You know, you, this is your show, so we always enjoy hearing from you. One thing I did want to ask you, though, real quick, is I saw that just beautiful painting that you uh, showed on your Instagram of the, of the little girl. What other kind of swag are you bringing back to the States? And how are you getting it here? Because I know you got some good first-class seats that you uh, well, lying back on. Well, first, well, again, if you, if you look, I've been, I went to Ghana twice before, so I, I did, I brought an empty uh, duffel bag, this huge duffel bag that I got from the OJ's golf tournament. Uh, and so, if I, if I want to buy some fabric or some things along those lines, uh, and luckily with the art pieces, they're canvas, and so I can just uh, re remove them from the uh, from the black and uh, just slide them right into the bag. So it's you know, uh, uh, totally got some eye on stuff. Uh, there's there's amazing carvings and things along those lines, uh, and so um, yeah, we'll have time to uh, time time to do uh, some of that shopping. But yeah, those, those were art pieces that were all over City Hall yesterday, and I saw that one. And I said, yo, I got to get, get that one that really stood out. So uh, my wife liked that one as well. So she was like, yeah, get that one. So it was, uh, it, it, it was, it was pretty cool uh, checking that out. And, um, you know, it, it, I think I, I, I still go back to this for many of us. 
uh, and that is it, it is important for us as African Americans uh, to not be so locked into our mindset of just what's happening in the United States, what's happening with our people uh, globally. Because uh, you guys had the story the other day, and when you look at the, the black immigrant population, is growing three times faster than African Americans in the United States. When I talk again, there are one million Liberians in the U.S. They are significant in Houston, in Philadelphia, in Washington, D.C., in many places. And so I know you got people out there who all, all we only should be concerned about African Americans, uh, but, but the reality is this. If you have those type of numbers, we better recognize that we better be in partnership and not in competition. Right, Roland, and we've been discussing how we're not really moving the needle that much economically in this country with the statistics that we're seeing around the wealth gap and home ownership. And, you know, you talked about it when you've done your programming on Ghana, that one of the real opportunities for economic investment is actually back in the motherland. So, you know, hopefully people watching your coverage will see more ways that they can get involved and perhaps, uh, you know, harness some opportunities in Liberia. Anything else you want to share with us, uh, Roland, before we go to a break? Uh, we, yeah, we've got, uh, we got more stuff. That's something we'll be bringing back. We'll be, again, we'll be live uh, tomorrow, live Saturday. Uh, and uh, again, I hope I think right now the evening president is still to Sunday, this Monday. I think we're leaving on Monday. So we're trying to figure out, okay, because our initial flight got bumped. So we're trying to work through that. Uh, but we look really forward to, to, uh, to bringing that conversation as well. And, 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 and let me say this, and I really want our fan base to understand this. Um, CNN is not here. MSNBC is not here. Fox News, ABC, NBC, CBS, all Washington Post, New York Times, and these people here. Okay? I, I run, we run to some French reporters uh, who are here. So I want our people to understand this network is called Black Star Network. It's named after the cruise ship of Marcus Garvey. Why did Marcus Garvey want that cruise ship? To connect African-Americans with the African diaspora. That's also what we're able to do with the network. So the covers that we're providing, we're talking to Liberian-Americans. We're sharing this story. And so when, when we talk about support, what we're building, we literally are building what our ancestors wanted us to build. And so you got haters out there who do what they do. And so when we ask for folks' support, understand this is why we are doing it. This is what we're trying to accomplish. And I've got people who come to me, okay, hey, man, when you come to Senegal, when you come to Nigeria, when you come into, come into South Africa, uh, we have to be completely in control of telling our own story. Uh, and so I appreciate it my fan base when you guys uh, are able to support us. And so uh, y'all know what I do. Cash app, uh, go in, pull it up. Dollar sign, RM Unfiltered. Uh, of course, PayPal is R Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Uh, Zale is rolling at rollingismartin.com. Uh, and if you pay uh, uh, the P.O. Box, okay, I can't remember off the top of my head. It's new. Uh, right there, P.O. Box 57196, Washington, D.C., 20037. Uh, my screen is blocking it. I think it's 37. Uh, trust me, when you are able to contribute, you are making trips like this possible for us to tell the story that mainstream media, and let me also be clear, no other American black-owned media is here either. So basically, keep holding it down. 
Greg, thanks a lot. Tell the mayor my apologies, uh, but we're going to put him back on the show. Put him back on and give, give him his time back. All right. Thanks, Roland. And like you guys heard it, you can only get these stories here on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. We'll be right back. Don't you think it's time to get wealthy? I'm Deborah Owens, America's Wealth Coach, and my new show on the Black Star Network focuses on the things your financial advisor or bank isn't telling you. So watch Get Wealthy on the Black Star Network. a chair take your seat the black tape with me dr greg carr here on the black star network every week we'll take a deeper dive into the world we're living in join the conversation only on the black star network when i look at the future it's so bright, it burns my eyes. Oprah Winfrey. With the high poverty number in California and the rise of inflation across the country, another California person is right, fighting to raise the minimum wage. Uh, let's see, the wrong thing. Let's see. Businessman and anti-poverty activist Joe Sandberg is proposing California lawmakers raise the rate from $15 to $18. However, several states are fighting to keep minimum wage right where it is at across the nation. Last week, Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi filed a lawsuit against the Biden administration for increasing the minimum wage for any federal contractor to $15 per hour. Ada Brasino, co-president of Unite Here Local 11, joins me to talk about the push for $18. Welcome, Ada. How are you this evening? Great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to speak about, uh, about the increase of the minimum wage. So to be clear, in California, the minimum wage is already $15. Is that right? That's right. As of uh, January 1st of 2022, it's $15 an hour. 
Okay, so talk to us a little bit more about the push for $18 and what has been the reaction so far from the business community and the local community with this proposal? Well, look, I've got to say that there is an increase that we are looking for of a dollar per hour. So effective January 1st of 2023, uh, increased by an hour to $16. And then in the next of the two years, uh, to $18 an hour in, in 2025. So look, I'm really focused on what it does to the working families, to workers across the state in California. So I represent hotel workers uh, for Local 11, the Hotel Workers Union. We represent cooks and dishwashers and specifically for the industry, for the hospitality industry, Raising the minimum wage is critical to making sure that people get back to work and to save the industry. So uh, there is no larger group that will be benefited from this, but the folks who are underrepresented. So it will help women, underrepresented groups, who, are, who, who usually are the backbone of the hospitality industry. And Unite Here Local 11 has been committed to raising the minimum wage for some time. And this measure, we are pushing to get signatures as we speak. Uh, we have dishwashers and cooks who are on the ground speaking to voters across the state and specifically here in, California, in, in Los, the Los Angeles area to gather signatures to pass this particular uh, minimum wage increase. So our campaign is moving forward. It's of working people. It's for working people, and we're very excited. Uh, there's no worker in California that can make $15 an hour and they, that they will tell you that it's enough. One job should be enough uh, to put a roof over your head and pay your bills for your family. But unfortunately, with as you noted a little bit ago, with a rising cost of, of living, you know, everyday Californians are finding it very difficult to make ends meet and having one work, one job no longer works for them. So we've got to help change that. And we know that when you know, these corporations and billionaires have seen their wealth and profits really skyrocket in the middle of a deadly pandemic and uh, and that it's essential for us to increase the wage so we can keep our economy running. Um, so thank you so much for having me here to speak about it. Thank you. So can, I, can you talk a little bit about the strategy? Because from my understanding, this is a ballot initiative. Why did you guys choose to go the ballot initiative right, route, route as opposed to the legislator route when you have Democrats that are in charge of the legislature and you have Governor Gavin Newsom? Talk a little bit about that strategy. Look, there's nothing more democratic than putting something on the ballot. And so this November, California voters will have a chance to give themselves a raise by going to the ballot box. So we believe that that is a, a strong way for Californians to speak uh, and to move forward. Um, and that's why we're, we're collecting signatures throughout California right now. We're expecting to collect approximately 700,000 signatures in the next uh, two months in order to qualify the ballot for 2022. And are you anticipating any kind of uh, legal challenges if this ballot initiative were to succeed? We see that all the time in the state of California. There's a lot of opposition to measures even after they've passed. 
Well, we know, obviously, that there are uh, folks that are not going to be interested in this moving forth, and those are the billionaires and the corporations. Uh, but I believe in the will of the people. And even through challenges, I believe that, especially if it's voted by uh, the voters in California, that it will uh, it, that will do well. And have you have you decided on a strategy of making this an issue locally in terms of Los Angeles is having big primaries, the big mayoral race there? Um, are you kind of approaching things on a local as well as state level, or are you trying to focus on the state level first and see what happens there? Well, our particular union is is based uh, uh, in Southern California, in uh, most of Southern California, and Los Angeles is a big part of of where we're at, and so. We are going to do everything possible to ensure that the voters understand that this will be on the ballot and that they have an opportunity to give themselves a raise. And, you know, it's crucial. Small businesses, uh, you know, move forward when, rate, when, when we see raises uh, come in for workers. We know that the minimum wage will help our industry grow, that raising the minimum wage doesn't only lift workers. But it gives families more resources to spend in local restaurants and businesses. It's a step towards ensuring that people can take vacations and stay in hotels. Uh, in the, you know, similarly that they have a chance to serve people that go into hotels. They can also, uh, you know, uh, stay in those establishments. You know, and it rebuilds the industry, our economy, um, and it creates a thriving middle class. Look, we know that before the pandemic. Uh, there are so many things broken uh, that were that that have been broken with our systems, uh, and, and as it pertains to working families, and we're not willing to go back to the same place. It's gotten worse for working families, and we've got to figure out how to lift workers, um, you know, uh, out of where they're at in this in, in 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 this economy. We need an economic recovery for all, and I believe that this ballot initiative gives us a strong tool towards that. Ada, thank you so much for being here and giving us insight into this push for $18 an hour. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. All right, let's go back to the panel. Tarain, Tarain I'm going to start with you. Um, mm -hmm. you know, so much when we discuss uh, minimum wage and the increases that are associated with that, we talk about the impact of businesses and on profits. But I think it's really important that we center the impact of actual individuals because this nation is built up of a lot more people that are relying on the minimum wage to determine their quality of life than millionaires and billionaires. What's your take on this push? Well, first, I want to commend her for the initiative. And secondly, I want to say that it's really a shame that it takes grassroots people to, try, to have to push um, legislatures and politicians to do things for the hum for humans that they that are supposed to represent um there seems to be this attitude amongst legislatures in this country and among people who are wealthy that you know let the poorer and the working class fend for themselves and without giving them any kind of safety net or any kind of job security and i think that's extremely dangerous because you can't have a permanent underclass that's completely this living in fear and living in financial um stress and doubt and have a healthy working economy. And I think there has to be a re removal from, there has to be removal from billionaires and people who are wealthy, controlling the narrative, and getting to talking to people who go to work every day or trying to make ends meet and trying to figure out what their needs are because there's a definite disconnect there. And if that disconnect continues, it's gonna be disastrous for this economy in this country, I feel. 
You're right. There is a disconnect there. And, and it's good that we're seeing more moves in the local level and state levels, but there needs to be federal action on this. Uh, Dr. Carr, I'll give you the last comment on this. You know, the other story that I briefly touched on was the fact that Texas and several states are suing the Biden-Harris administration for the executive order where he uh, determined that um, the federal minimum wage for contractors is $15. And they're saying that that's going to hurt their ability to compete. Now, we know I've worked in federal contracting, and I know that they got plenty of money in those contracts. They are not starving for wages. They're not laying people off because of minimum wages. And so what is your take on basically the Republicans basically saying very clearly that the minimum wage is the way that they're going to continue to be competitive, even if that's at the expense of the people that are working, making $7.25 an hour? Oh, absolutely. I think it's because of that, that that they will be competitive. First of all, I'd like to congratulate and continue to encourage uh, white nationalism's chief lawyer, the attorney general of Texas, Ken Paxton, uh, lawyer with the firm of KK and K, for his uh, latest lawsuit against our common humanity aimed at the federal government. And, and he's entirely right. Um, people are leaving California, coming to Texas, um, companies that is, because they can engage in the type of uh, hyper-capitalist uh, exploitation of workers that Texas has made possible. That's another reason why they want to suppress the vote in Texas. And another reason I think, as you were talking to Ada, it makes sense to go for a referendum. It might even insulate them a little bit better against lawsuits. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so uh, you rather than go through the legislature. But anyway, I started to say this. Um, the disconnect we have is that we are inching closer to a showdown with capitalism. You see, you know, the wealth inequality in, 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 in California has grown even during the pandemic. And so it's not that people can't afford it. It's that there is no such thing as too much. So the hyper-profiteering is why uh, the, the, the Klan adjacent Paxton is suing again and joined by Mississippi and Louisiana. And I think ultimately what's going to happen is we're going to see, to, to, to echo Terrain's point, um, we're going to see a fracture in this country. Uh, we've seen this before. This is the basis of the Civil War. Uh, this is the basis of the White Lash in the wake of the Civil Rights Movement. Capitalism does not like people. They want to exploit people. And so when you see at the state level this type of action like California is engaged in, and then you see Texas trying to take on the federal government, they're trying to preserve the framework of this country for capitalism. And I think it's, I should say one other thing, Howard University announced today that they got 40, they're part of a $40 million grant from the Hewlett Foundation. Harvard, Howard, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Johns Hopkins, and another network, uh, Omidyar Network, they got this $40 million to, uh, what they call it, uh, established multidisciplinary centers to reimagine capitalism. <laughs> now, when's the last time you saw people with millions of dollars invest in institutions to reimagine capitalism. They're not reimagining capitalism. They're trying to figure out how to hold on for one more pass by the bank. And so that's that's why it has to come from the people. Because if you leave it up to the capitalists, they just keep renting politicians and at this point policymakers at universities to stay in power. Interesting. I'm sure when you heard reimagine capitalism, Dr. Carr, <laughs> you were not feeling that at all. I, for real? Really? <laughs>
Okay, that's very nice. Let's see, can we reimagine it? <laughs> right, right. Well, listen, we still have a lot more to come. This is Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Pastor Jackie Hood-Martin, and I have a question for you. Ever feel as if your life is teetering and the weight and pressure of the world is consistently on your shoulders? Well, let me tell you, living a balanced life isn't easy. Join me each Tuesday on Black Star Network for a balanced life with Dr. Jackie. We'll laugh together, cry together, pull ourselves together, and cheer each other on. So join me for new shows each Tuesday on Black Star Network, a balanced life with Dr. Jackie. We're all impacted by the culture, whether we know it or not. From politics to music and entertainment, it's a huge part of our lives. And we're going to talk about it every day right here on The Culture with me, Faraji Muhammad, only on the Black Star Network. Hey, everybody, it's your girl, Lunell. So what's up? This is your boy, Earthquake. Hi, I'm Chaley Rose, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Lori Page was reported missing on January 23rd, 2022. Because Lori suffered a brain aneurysm, rendering her mentally unstable, the Baltimore Police Department considers her a missing vulnerable adult. Lori is five feet, five inches tall, weighs 100 pounds with black hair and brown eyes. Anyone who has seen her or knows her whereabouts should call the Baltimore Police Department at 410-396-2477. Pennsylvania Senator Pat Toomey shocked the GOP with his retirement plans, leaving his seat open to the possibly changing the tide of the U.S. Senate. Over a dozen people have thrown their name in the Senate race. One of them is State Representative Malcolm Kenyatta, the youngest elected state representative in Pennsylvania and the first openly LGBTQ person of color elected to the Pennsylvania Grand General Assembly in the state's history. Here's his announcement that he's running to become the next senator of Pennsylvania. Government hasn't worked for working families like mine. I know what it's like to see an eviction notice, to work a minimum wage job, 
My first one was at the age of 12, working to support my family. My dad was a social worker. My mom was a home health care aide. No matter how hard they worked, they struggled to make ends meet for me and my siblings. And unfortunately, my story isn't that unique. It's familiar to Pennsylvanians all across the Commonwealth. Working families from Philly to Erie, from Scranton to Johnstown, from Bethlehem to Uniontown are resilient and leaning on one another. But Pennsylvania and America are at a crossroads. After four years of division and just over a month since a failed coup at the United States Capitol, we face a question of who we want to be as a country. But we also face a recognition what's been broken has been broken for more than four years. We have to answer the question at the heart of every campaign. Who should government work for? We need policies that actually speak to working families and lift them up. We have to choose. Are we going to go down the path of darkness? Or are we ready to bring a new day to Pennsylvania? A new day that demands we acknowledge how out of reach the American promise has been for too many of us. A new day where we confront head-on challenges in healthcare, in climate, in gun violence, and poverty. A new day where we don't just talk about justice, but we make it real in our lifetime. A new day where no matter who you are, who you love, how you worship, you get a fair shot. It's time for a new day, Pennsylvania. I'm Malcolm Kenyatta, and I'm running for the United States Senate. Malcolm Kenyatta joins me now. Hey, Wog. Hey, Malcolm. First, let me start by saying congratulations, newlywed. How are you? Thank you so, thank you so much. And I know I'll get in trouble if I don't uh, say hello from from Dr. Matt. Um, and we just want to say congratulations to you. Okay. Um, the way that you use this platform to educate and engage people um, and on all the big things that I know are coming your way. So really Thank proud of you. Thank you so much. Okay, so tell the viewers out there who are not familiar with your campaign, what is the biggest difference you're going to bring to this race as opposed to your opponents? What is your What are your platform priorities and why is what you're bringing to the table missing from the U.S. Senate? You know, first and foremost, I can win <laughs> this race. Um, I think a big part of this is folks who might not be from Pennsylvania, I think don't understand a, a couple of important things. That, that first of all, we do have to answer this question of who do we think government should work for. Mm -hmm. And we have to be talking about the real reality that the basic bargain, this idea that you can have one good job backed up by a union, that your kids can go to a good school no matter where you live, that if you or them get sick along the way, that you're actually able to go to the doctor and fill the prescription when you leave. And then finally, that you're able to retire with that home you were able to afford in the first place in a neighborhood that's safe, has clean air and clean water. But for us to be able to deliver on those priorities and make that basic bargain accessible, we have to win. 52% of all the people in Pennsylvania live in southeastern Pennsylvania. And so we need somebody who can go to every single county and speak with a level of urgency and authenticity about what is at stake, about how Democrats can continue to push the Biden-Harris agenda through a Senate that has blocked progress on so many of the things that I know the president and vice president want to accomplish and can put together the coalition that flipped Democrats and um, flipped the Pennsylvania for Democrats in 2020. I know a lot about what it took to put that coalition together. Our campaign is re-putting re that together, reforming it. Um, and now we're ready to 
go to Washington and deliver on all the things that I just talked about. You said it very plainly, you can win. And I think what Pennsylvania being such a key race, we always hear this ugly term, where it's head when a black person is running and it's called electability. And you're running against two relatively popular white politicians in this state who are raising a lot of money. Can you put people's mind to rest? People that are believing that you have to go with the status quo in order to ensure a win, even though those same status quo candidates have lost to Pat Toomey in the past. Can you just explain why it's time to bet on a Malcolm Kenyatta instead of the same formula that hasn't worked in Pennsylvania in unseating the Republicans there? Yeah, I think first and foremost, whoever the Democratic nominee is will have tons and tons of, of money. Um, so that's not gonna be a problem. In Virginia, Democrats didn't lose the governor's mansion because we didn't have enough money. We will have enough money. And I think, you know, on Saturday, I've been in this campaign for a year. And so I think the questions of, of viability, electability are frankly moot. I'm in this race. We're running every single day. We're putting endorsements on the board every single day. And we've built the type of coalition that it's going to take to win in Pennsylvania, a coalition that includes, um, first and foremost, the type of regional diversity that you need, the type of generational diversity, um, and frankly, an ideological diversity. We have a big tent party, and we have to be able to bring it together. That was one of the reasons I, I supported the president so early, because I felt like he had the ability to bring our party together and then bring in those disaffected voters. When people talk about who can win in this race, the first question is, who can win in southeastern Pennsylvania? Mm -hmm. My opponents have no track record of winning in southeastern Pennsylvania. Um, turns out, I do. <laughs> my, my district is diverse. Economically, it's diverse racially. And I think that there is a reason that the president trusted me to be a voice and face of his campaign, not just in black communities, but he was asking me to go to rural Iowa, um, South Carolina, New Hampshire, all across. I want to also point out that I was the most requested surrogate for folks who were running for re-election in tough districts in 2020, red districts, blue districts, purple districts. And so I have a real experience in going around um, talking about how we build back better, talking about how we restore that basic bargain, and talking about the things that people want to see us accomplish, like extending the child tax credit, which we know was putting money into people's pockets, dealing with some of the hard costs that are making uh, things more expensive for families, like like childcare. You are you are a mama, and you know how expensive childcare is, and we have to do things like universal pre-K, build on so much of the economic progress that that we've seen. And I think if we don't have a nominee who was able to bring out black voters, able to bring out young voters, get low propensity suburban voters to come out, then we won't win. And I think I'm best positioned to do that. I believe in you, absolutely. Normally we would go to the panel, but we're running a little bit behind. But I do want to squeeze in one more question for you, Malcolm. And I think we have to move beyond just, you know, people tend to enjoy the folks that have the nice rhetoric and things like that. But you're an actual state elected official and you've sponsored over 200 pieces of legislation. Uh, legislation. So just give the, um, the viewers a sense of what have been the, the accomplishments you've actually have your receipts in the state General Assembly that you think demonstrate why you're the right person for the Senate uh, race. 
you know, first and foremost, you had other folks in this race who were on TV talking about Republicans trying to overturn the election. I was actually in the room making sure that they didn't. Um, I am the Democratic chair of our subcommittee on campaign finance and elections, and I was in the room and helped to lead the effort to upend what the uh, Republicans called their election integrity committee, where they wanted to actually investigate the 2020 election in real time and throw out ballots and all of that nonsense. And so we got that done. And you know what? That, ten that ended up um, being pretty important to making sure um, the people who actually won Pennsylvania yeah, President Biden, Vice President Harris, um, that those votes were actually counted and that we respected the will of the people. Um, I worked on things from criminal justice reform, um, cybersecurity, um, and also on a big issue that's been incredibly important to me, um, mental health care. Um, folks should, um, there's really tragic statistics out here showing that um, rates of suicide have increased the most among black men. The toughest day I've had as a legislator is getting a call um, from Linda, who has now passed, letting me know that her 11-year-old grandson had died by suicide. His name was Little Phil. And we got some folks who had been supportive of me over the years to pay for that uh, funeral and to deal with all the different needs that the family had at that, at that moment. But one of the things I promised them, promised them is that we would never forget little Phil. I introduced Phillips Law with a Republican to reimagine the way that we provide mental health care in our schools for our kids, to have an actual ratio of how many mental health professionals per student. I talked to President Biden, then Vice President Biden, about this, and he actually added it to the Biden-Harris agenda. You go on the website, you'll see it there, that those are one of the things that he wants to get done. And so there's a lot that we need to do in, in Washington to help move forward this agenda. But I will tell you this, when I get to stand behind the president with little Phil's family and say, we got this done, that will be um, the most important thing that I do, frankly, um, as a U.S. senator. Wow. Our hearts go out to Phil's family. And thank you for, for really taking up that mantle, because we are seeing an alarming increase in suicide. And mental health is something that where many people are struggling with. We're actually going to have on a guest later to talk about that. Last thing, how can people support your campaign, follow you, contribute, if they want to see you win this, this primary? So I'm at Malcolm Kenyatta on everything, every everywhere. And so folks can really engage with, with, with our campaign um, because, listen, we're going everywhere. We're talking to everybody about how we make this basic bargain real for people. And that is the way that not only we're going to win, but listen, I'm running to be the senator for the day when the election is over. So often this becomes just about a campaign. It's not about a campaign. It's about people's real lives and what we can do to make their real lives better. And so, again, um, you know, so, so incredibly proud of you. Thank you. And also, I'll tell you this, I'll end with this. You're having on, or maybe you've already had on, one of Dr. Matt's uh, oldest friends, uh, uh, Mayor Tubbs. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I love my <laughs> mayor. We, had, we lost him for a second, but... Having both of you on this show, that's the dynamite lineup as far as I'm concerned. So thank you so much, Malcolm, for, for joining us. And good luck to you on your campaign. Thank you so much. All right, going on to our next story. In Florida, a Florida state senator plans to get 40,000 Black and Latino voters registered to vote by mail ahead of the 2022 midterm elections. Chevron Jones Operation Blackout is an effort to combat the state's restrictive voting laws, limiting voting by mail and disproportionately affecting voters of color. Jones believes this will project 
This project will encourage more black people to vote since they will not have to wait in lines at the polls. In Texas, a similar, Texas has similar voting restrictions and the Young Black Lawyers Organizing Coalition is filing a federal lawsuit against the voter suppression laws. Abdul Dosumo, founder and chief strategist of the Young Black Lawyers Organizing Coalition joins us now to tell us more. Hi, Abdul, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And so Texas right now, I'm seeing alarming reports, specifically in Democratic strongholds of 35% of the mail-in, um, I'm not sure if it's the applications or the ballots themselves are being rejected. So the work that you're doing in Texas with your lawsuit is really critical in trying to turn undo the tide of these really restrictive voting laws. Talk a little bit about your lawsuit and how that, if that um, relates to the rejections that we're seeing with absentee ba ballots or is there something else that this is related to? Absolutely. Well, first of all, uh, to uh, your listeners who don't know us, we're the Young Black Lawyers Organizing Coalition. Uh, we are a network of young black lawyers and law students uh, who are mobilizing to provide community-centered voter education and empowerment uh, to black voters across the country, including in Texas. Um, and just to be clear, we have filed an amicus brief, um, which is uh, not the same thing as a lawsuit. Um, it's a friend of the court brief um, that essentially brings in new information that the court should be considering um, in their... Uh, evaluation of a case um, from interested parties. And the, the argument that we're making to the court um, is that you know that this bill um, is horrific for uh, black voters, but what you may not know is that it's also horrific for black civic organizations that are working to protect and empower black voters. So this bill uh, is bad on a number of bases, including uh, that it introduces a number of criminal penalties um, for constitutionally protected civic engagement by organizations like black churches, black fraternities and sororities, black civil rights organizations like ours uh, that are active in helping to protect and empower black voters. And so the, the point that we're making to the court uh, is that uh, this bill is harmful in a number of ways, uh, including the impact that it has on uh, black civic organizations that are working exactly on the issues uh, that you've laid out with respect to vote by mail, um, with respect to making sure that voters are empowered and informed about their rights. You bring up a really excellent point because so many times when people think about voter suppression, they just think, oh, somebody, it's harder for them to register to vote. But the criminal, criminalizing um, support from organizations is just an abomination. It's unconscionable. I'm going to bring in the panel a little bit earlier than normal on this one since they've been on standby. So, Terrain, I'll give you the first question for Mr. Abdul. Hello, Mr. Abdul. Um, my question is, do you think that what you're seeing in Texas is sort of like a rehashing of what happened right after um, Reconstruction, where there was like an active, um, there was like an active um, mission for white supremacists to start roll, rolling back black voter rights and black legislation at that time? It's exactly what we saw right after Reconstruction. Um, you know, we actually do voter education work in partnership with community-based organizations, so black churches, um, black uh, community uh, groups. And we actually walk 
uh, the participants through the history of voter suppression in the state of Texas. And one of the points we make um, is that uh, what we're seeing now is very reminiscent of what we saw immediately after the Reconstruction era in Texas. During the Reconstruction era in Texas, you start to see uh, black elected officials uh, increase in number. You start to see black voters reach political parity on the voting rolls um, in, in the state. You start to see rural counties where black voters have a political majority uh, start to take their seat at the table. Um, and then almost immediately after, in reaction to that, uh, you see the introduction of uh, whites-only primaries. You see the introduction of poll taxes. Um, and the important point that we often make to our audiences is that the public pretext that was used in that moment was fighting voter fraud. So the exact pretext that's being used right now to justify voter suppression was being used uh, in the early 20th century uh, to justify voter suppression at that time. So it's exactly reminiscent. The players have changed, but the playbook is still the same. You're right, Abdul. And, and what's interesting, too, is, you know, with Texas, it's still pretty much a red state, right? But, of course, you know, we can look at measures like this and, and determine that it's not a red state because of the ideological bent of the, kind of the state, but because of the voter suppression and the way that it's gerrymandered to prevent every person from having an equal voice in the government. What's also interesting is that they aren't waiting for a person, a Beto to win or for a Biden to win statewide in terms of the Electoral College votes. They are getting started now fast and furious with making sure that it never happens. We saw with the 2020 elections, there was a huge push for vote by mail. And now that is the, one of the first things that they've attacked. Can you explain just why it's so effective to attack the vote by mail process? And do you think that there needs to be a change in strategy in terms of educating the voters um, to, to not do vote by mail? Or, you know, what do you think is next in terms of outside of the lawsuit, the, the, the logistics of voting right now in Texas? Well, you know, the reality is, is that we saw unprecedented numbers of voters and black voters vote by mail in 2020. Uh, let's not forget, we're still living in a global pandemic that is disproportionately impacting black communities, right? And so um, it, it is critically important uh, that black voters have unfettered access uh, to vote by mail as an option. And that's exactly why vote by mail has come under attack uh, by the forces of voter suppression in the state. Uh, you mentioned it earlier, but in some counties, we're seeing uh, vote-by-mail applic ballot applications rejected uh, at uh, some 40 percent, rates of some 40 percent. Um, and so uh, the issue in Texas, as you, as you know, is that on your vote-by-mail ballot application, you're now required to include the ID, uh, the voter ID that is on your voter file. Right. And the problem, of course, is that most people don't remember what voter ID is on their voter file. Um, and so a number of ballots, thousands of ballots across the state, a number of ballot applications are being rejected because the numbers don't match. So the strategy um, is not so much from our perspective to discourage people from voting by mail. The strategy 
is to provide actionable and timely voter education information uh, to voters so that they can successfully vote by mail. So what we are encouraging, uh, what many voting organizations are encouraging uh, uh, voters to do who wish to vote by mail is to actually include both your Texas driver's license number and the last four digits of your social security number on your vote by mail ballot application. One of them is bound to be correct. Uh, one of them is bound to, to match what's on your voter file uh, to minimize uh, the risk of your ballot application being rejected. Um, so what we've got to do as a community is really mobilize around voter education. We do a great job on voter registration. We do a great job on voter mobilization. What we don't often do a great job on is voter education and voter protection. And that's the work that we're doing. And that's exactly why the amicus brief that we filed in federal court this week is so important, because what the state of Texas is trying to do is to really clamp down, shut down on uh, the ecosystem of black-led organizations that do this critical work of empowering and educating our communities. And we cannot let that happen. Right. You're absolutely right. Um, Dr. Carr, last question goes to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Reese. And, and thank you. Thank you, Brother uh, DeZumo. I look over your shoulder and I see Margaret Ed's book on two of the baddest lawyers of the 20th century, Spotswood Robinson and Oliver Hill, man. And I tell my students all the time, it's a time for heroes. So my hat is off to you, man, and your comrades, because in terms of intellectual warfare, this is when heroes are made. So I think about Spotswood Robinson and them, and I said, this generation here, y'all, y'all lining up for that. Man, there are so many questions I would love to ask you, but I'm gonna keep it, I'm gonna keep it brief. Uh, I read y'all's amicus brief and then the Brennan Center's uh, uh, complaint. When you say that this statute can't survive strict scrutiny on First Amendment grounds and 14th Amendment grounds. Uh, my question is, do you think that might be the strongest part of the case? Because it seems like they're going to tear their little constitution up. Either these amendments mean something or they don't. And then the second question really is about the 15th Amendment. I'm thinking about Gamillion versus Lightfoot, you know, and, and years ago. Why don't you think the 15th Amendment is used more in these cases? Since it seems to be fairly, on just a plain reading of, this, uh, of the amendment, we should at least be able to introduce that argument. I'm really wondering about your thoughts. And thanks again, brother. Really, really, really impressed and, and, and grateful y'all on this on the wall. Well, thank you so much. I'm a big fan of yours. Um, so thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, you know, we really do consider ourselves to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, inheritors of uh, the tradition um, of so many tremendous civil rights lawyers. Um, and law students um, who have been involved in the fight to protect uh, our rights. Um, and, you know, I think the reality, and one of the things that we were motivated by in introducing the amicus brief is that uh, there are so many grounds upon which uh, this law uh, is plainly unconstitutional um, and should be struck down. Uh, you know, it is uh, clearly, if you look at the statute, um, that, and you look at the provisions that we've laid out in our amicus brief, it's clearly overbroad. Uh, you've got clearly murky language. There are no limiting principles around uh, the uh, prohibitions on, on speech uh, in this bill. Um, and so, you know, the court has everything that it needs um, from the uh, discriminatory impact on voters to the discriminatory impact on civic organizations to strike this law down, and we certainly urge that they do. But let me just end on this note. Um, it is absolutely critical 
um, that we not leave this to a court-by-court, state-by-state fight. Uh, this is why it is urgent that we pass federal voting rights legislation. It's critical that we pass the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, right? Because so long as we are leaving this to the courts, which in many ways we have lost over the last uh, decades, uh, we're going to be fighting this in a piecemeal way. We need a comprehensive federal commitment to protecting our voting rights. Abdul, thank you so much for being here. Before you go, let the viewers know how they can support your initiatives or keep in contact with your organization. Absolutely. Anyone who wants to support our work, any law students or young lawyers who want to join us can go to our website at yblock.org, or you can follow us on social media at Young Black BLK Lawyers. Thank you, Abdul. Rolla Martin Unfiltered will be right back after this break. You're watching the Black Star Network. Don't you think it's time to get wealthy? I'm Deborah Owens, America's Wealth Coach, and my new show on the Black Star Network focuses on the things your financial advisor or bank isn't telling you. So watch Get Wealthy on the Black Star Network. Pull up a chair, take your seat. The Black Tape with me, Dr. Greg Carr, here on the Black Star Network. Every week, we'll take a deeper dive into the world we're living in. Join the conversation only on the Black Star Network. I always had something to shoot for each year to jump one inch further. Olympic champion, Jackie Joyner-Kersey. In Georgia, a federal jury heard more testimony about racist and hate-filled language Travis and Gregory McMichael and William Roddy Bryan used against black people. The three men are standing trial for federal hate crime charges and the murder of Ahmaud Aubrey. 
Travis McMichael's friend, Derek Thomas, testified McMichael would respond to funny videos using expletive language. Once, in response to a black person playing a prank, McMichael said, I'd have killed that N-word. Jurors also saw evidence, memes, posts, and pictures shared by all three men showing their hate for black people. The cop who regularly patrolled the Satilla Shores neighborhood also testified there was no evidence of Arbery stealing or breaking anything in the home he was seen wandering around in. Hundreds gathered in Minneapolis for the funeral service for Amir Locke, the 22-year-old black man who was killed by Minneapolis police serving a no-knock search warrant. During the, during the service, Amir's family members spoke to the legacy of the late Locke and sent a clear message to police officers across the nation, we need change. The service took place at Shiloh Temple International Ministries, where Dante Wright's funeral took place. A D.C. police officer is on administrative leave due to a pending investigation surrounding the officer's alleged involvement with the right-wing group named the Proud Boys. According to the Washington Post, the investigation centers on communications between Lieutenant Shane Lamont, a 22-year-old, a 22-year veteran of the department, and Henry Enrique Tarrio, a leader of the Proud Boys. D.C. police Chief Robert Conti said it was his decision to take the officer off the streets. The investigation... Upon my review of those concerns, I have decided to place one of our members in an administrative leave uh, status. Uh, that member is currently uh, in that status as of yesterday. And part of the reason why we have placed a member in that status is, again, based upon uh, my review of what we know uh, so far. Uh, from day one, I have been committed to transparency and accountability, not just for members of the Metropolitan Police Department, but uh, anywhere, any space in the Metropolitan Police Department and any space in community where there are things that are happening that should not happen. In this particular space, uh, where we talk about transparency and accountability, we want to make sure uh, that our members, the members of the Metropolitan Police Department, have the utmost trust and respect of the communities that we serve. And again, based upon my review of the concerns that have been raised, uh, it was my call to put this member in this current status. Again, I'm very limited in terms of what I can say. I will tell you that it is an ongoing investigation, and we will continue to work through this investigation to see ultimately. The investigation is still pending. The International Olympic Committee dismisses comp comparisons between U.S. track star Shakari Richardson and Russian figure skater Kamila Vileva over their doping scandals. IOC spokesperson Mark Adams says people shouldn't rush to judgment with the decision made by the committee. We have, we have an absolute duty to follow the letter of the law. Due process is very, very important. Um, it, it, we all talk about due process uh, when it's someone else. When it occurs to us, it's very, very important. So think of the personal issue of the person involved. We all need to follow the due process. This person has not even had their B sample opened. The case is not even finished yet. Uh, so to make all these grand statements is, I think, a little bit premature. In terms of Ms. Richardson's case, I mean, she tested positive on the 19th of June, quite a way ahead of the Games. The results came uh, in early order. 
for USADA to deal with the case on time before the Games. Ms Richardson accepted a one-month period of ineligibility, which began on June the 28th. So I would suggest that there isn't a great deal of similarity between. Richardson called out the IOC after allowing Voeva to participate in the Games despite falling, failing a drug test. Okay, I'm going to bring in the panel here. There's a lot to chew on what I just said, but let's start with Shakari Richardson. Terrain, I know what they just said about there's no comparison, but come on, we already know what the real deal is. What's your take on the IOC spokesperson trying to say that there isn't a double standard here? Well, first of all, I want to say it's definitely a double standard, but I want to take it out so much. I want to remove it from race so much because even though race is a factor, there's this mythology around the Olympic Games that the Olympic Games are about egalitarianism and brother universal brotherhood. The Olympic Games are about nationalism and politics. So what you saw happening with Shikari and with the young um, Russian skater is definitely politics at play. Um, you know, they're, they're, if I'm not mistaken, the Russian Olympic Committee is running a lot different than the, the International Olympic Committee and the American Olympic Committee. And the Russian Olympic Committee is very much state-funded, and a lot of nationalism is caught up in the Olympics, in the in Olympics and sport in um, Russia, going back to the old communist regimes. The situation with Jakari, I think, was absolutely based in bias because um, if we're going to talk about performance-enhancing drugs, I mean, let's be real, nobody ever got fast after smoking a blunt. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's not a performance-enhancing drug. Marijuana is not going to enhance your running ability. That was about nationalism, and that was about trying to move this person, who also I feel like was a very outspoken young woman. I'm talking about Shikari. She was a little bit different than what the Olympic Committee would say is, you know, Olympic decorum and the way a, a, an internationally uh, well-renowned athlete is supposed to act. And I think that was absolutely a part of it as well. So I think what we're seeing is definitely a double standard. If this young lady who's a skater is allowed to run with a performing enhancing drug, there should be no reason why Shikari should be able to run the way off of smoke is blunt. It's ridiculous. Dr. Carr, Terrain does bring up a good point. I mean, just let's look at the aesthetics here. Shakari Richardson is a black woman. She has this great, you know, um, bright hair, long nails, outspoken. This Russian 15-year-old figure skater obviously has a much more delicate look, you know, the kind of look that typically the society runs to their protection. Do you think that aesthetics as well as race play a role into this, as well as Shikari's personality, which I love personally, okay? I, I love a black woman who is outspoken. But uh, do you think that that is, is part of what we're seeing in the difference in the way this has been received? Oh, I'm sure in the, in the court of public opinion, no doubt. No doubt. It's a little white girl. You know, that's the baby doll. Uh, some people would prefer that aesthetic. Uh, shame on them if they have children that look like something other than the baby doll. If you prefer that, then we need to send you back to the 1950s. You probably picked that white doll during the doll test yourself. Um, but I have to agree with you and agree with Terrain. I agree with you, brother. I mean, this is about money and politics in a, in a great deal. The, the International Olympic Committee, uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't even really know who would win if you set up the people that run the uh, International Olympic Committee versus, say, FIFA and, and the World Cup as to who's the most corrupt. You got bag men, you got millions of dollars, you got, can't, do we have to postpone the Summer Olympics in Japan? I mean, there's so much money in this. And yes, as you say, Terrain, nationalism is at play. Um, but I do think in terms of what Adam said, and this ties back to what we were talking about a, a moment ago in terms of the voting rights cases, there's a difference between procedural due process and substantive due process. 
Hmm. His defense in this instance, by saying these are two different situations, he's saying that the investigation has not yet continued, uh, has not yet completed, meaning that her V-sample hasn't even been opened yet. Okay, what they're going to hide behind right now is process. And they're going to say that every case is different. We have to wait now. How does that converge with the politics? Well, simply put, they, like the like FIFA with World Cup, the IOC has always got its finger in the air to see which way the wind is blowing. If there were enough public outcry, then you might see this white girl get disqualified, but they're hoping to whistle past the graveyard and let this blow away. Now, finally, in terms of Shikari, um, I think it does come down to this, quite simply put. The cases are completely different because she's black. It's just that simple mm -hmm. in the broader sense. So, uh, but you know, these, these criminals have been at this criminal enterprise called the Olympics for a very long time. And so whether it be uh, disqualifying Jim Thorpe uh, because they say he played professional basketball, uh, uh, football on the weekends, whether it be uh, stripping medals and making John Carlos and, and Tommy Smith go home, these criminals been anti-non-white for a long time. And so this is just, you know, more of the same. Well, the bottom line is Camilla Laws anyway. She plays fourth. She fell several times. Perhaps all of the, the media buzz around it got to her. So it's a moot point in terms of meddling. Um, but... Uh, oh, oh, wait, you know who that was, right? You know who made her fall, right? Oh, well, there you Shikari's go. Grandma, the ancestor. <laughs> she tripped that joint. <laughs> you ain't got to worry about that. <laughs> what was, what was <laughs> the thing Apollo did? Calling the African angels? Calling the African oh, angels? Right. You ain't got to worry about that. Grandma took care of that. Big Mama took care of that. <laughs> well, there you That's go. That's going to be a meme by tomorrow. <laughs> well, uh, the ancestors might take care of somebody else when we talk about our next story, which is the NFL hires a former U.S. Attorney General to help defend against a major class action lawsuit. Former U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch will be taking the National Football League side in a highly publicized racial discrimination case. Ex-Miami Dolphins coach Brian Flores is suing the NFL for racial discrimination after being overlooked for job openings. There are currently just two black head coaches among the 32 teams in the league where nearly 70% of the players are black. Lynch, a Harvard law grad, is the first black female U.S. attorney general in U.S. history. <sighs> I tried to hide from the story because I was like, Lord, they tagging me in it. Oh, God, you know. I, I, you know, I try to give black women grace, but this is bad, Loretta. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know, baby, what is you doing? You know, this is the kind of thing that just is... Are you that hard up and pressed for money? Are you desperate for money? All checks don't have to be taken. This isn't like some, you know, everybody's entitled to a defense. We're talking about the NFL, who's clearly discriminated against black coaches time and time again. So what, what is you doing, Loretta? Terrain, I'm scared for what you're going to say. But go ahead. What you got? <laughs> I, I promise I'll behave, kind of. Okay. Um, I, talk about, I talk about this a lot on social media. But um, I think it's important for um, black people to kind of get out of this idea that just because somebody looks like you, that they're for you. Um, that is not the case. Just because somebody who is black and a woman or a man reaches a, a high office or gets into a very prominent position, 
because of our history in this country, we tend to celebrate that, and it does deserve to be celebrated. But we really got to look at the character of these people who we celebrate, and we got to look at their motivations. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing is what's happening with Loretta Lynch, outside of her deciding to take this case in the first place, is something that happens all the time when there's any kind of racist collusion or there's any kind of racist, um, any kind of organization or individual says something racist or does something racist. The first thing they do is find the first black preachers they can find, make an apology tour, get those people to stand behind them and say, see, we're not racist because we got black people who will come up here and they're willing to hug us and they're willing to stand on our side. We have to stop doing that and we have to stop being suckered in by that sort of thing. There's no look. There's no history, and there's no there's no his, there's no mystery about what the NFL has been standing for for the past five years. Look, this is the league that has end racism on their helmets, but they won't give Colin Kaepernick a job. This is the um, this is the league that's dealing with a collusion case and also dealing with a discrimination case against Brian Flores and other black coaches who have said that they can't, they weren't able to advance. So the fact that they have Loretta Lynch out as the point person in this. It really muddies the water, and it really doesn't help their case, to be frank, because it's going to draw more um, attention on the fact that it, all of a sudden you have a job for a black person, but you didn't have any on the field beforehand. You didn't have any in the front offices. You don't have you have very little black owner, black ownership. I think it's really ridiculous, and I think it's sad, and I think we have to really be clear about what kind of checks we want to take and what does representation mean to us, because all representation is not good representation, and all skin folk ain't kin folk. That's just the bottom line. I can't argue with you there, Terrain, because this is definitely not a kinfolk move on Loretta Lynch's part. And, you know, um, Dr. Carr's Terrain pointed out, they do very often try to put a black person as they push him out in front. We ain't, and we ain't in the back making any of the decisions in the, in, in the executive rooms, but when it's time to clean up on all six, they, they are very quick to find a black person. What is your reaction to this story? Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, you know, as we were sitting here, I was listening to you and listening to rain, to terrain. I, I'm thinking about these other black women. I thought about how they get screwed at the Olympics. Uh, <laughs> Surya Bonley, that was my girl. Remember the sister uh -huh. that did the back flips from West? They screwed her every time on the judges. I mean, that, and shout out, of course, to Lauren Jackson, who took that speed skating um, gold medal and said this is for the black girls. So I just wanted to preface that before I come for Loretta Lynch, and I'm coming for her. Because <laughs> oh I feel like that uh, I'm not coming for her because she's a black woman. I'm coming for her because she's a petty bourgeois representative. And I think that we should treat people. This isn't a question of gender. This isn't a question of gender. If it, if it was Lawrence Lentz, we're coming for her equally because, you know, we had this conversation last night. I was in, in class at, at the law school. And we sat there for a long time chewing this over. A couple of things for people who wouldn't know. Uh, Paul Weiss, the firm that Loretta Lynch is, is, is working with, working for, that's one of those white shoe law firms. That's a senior law firm. So, you know, it's Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison, but people refer to it as Paul Weiss. We were talking last night, even junior associates have the option to decline a case. Now, will that hurt their possibility of being promoted and eventually becoming partner? Maybe, maybe not, because office politics is office politics. But Loretta Lynch is not a junior associate. Quite frankly, I would be shocked if she did not have the option to turn that case down. She's a former attorney general. So at a law firm like that, uh, uh, someone like, like that with status, they have the option of saying, no, I'm not going to do that. So so she took that. She and Brad Carp are going to defend them. Um, he, you know, cowardice, thy name is establishment. So please understand what we see is going on here. 
Ryan Flores and his lawyer is going to have to fight the NFL, Paul Weiss and them. The Dolphins, Stephen Ross, got his own lawyer. And then the guy who has minority stake in the Dolphins, but who has right of first refusal in case they come for Ross, he got his own lawyer. The Texans are going to get their own lawyer when they're attached. The Broncos have their own lawyer. The Giants have their own lawyer. You got billionaires going to pay money out to Wazoo against one dude. Now, the rest of y'all out there in the NFL, I'm talking about all the coaches, all the administrators, the players, y'all, if y'all stand by and watch this guy get murked, you know what? You deserve everything you get. Every dancing Negro in prison uniforms at a halftime show, you deserve everything you get. Sean Carter, wherever you hiding and cowering, you deserve everything you get. And every Negro that watches the league, you deserve everything you get. I ain't mad at Loretta Lynch. We've seen this show before. It's called Massa. We sick. So the whole point is that at the end of the day, Loretta Lynch ain't the problem. Power is the problem. And we have the power if we choose to use it. But if not, hey, go on, let Loretta Lynch get her little check for Paul Weiss because she just wrote her name in the annals on the wrong side of history. And I kind of feel sorry for her. Well, that is that. See, you on thought that? I was going to do that and then it was Dr. Carr, see? <laughs> no, no, it didn't do with gender. It's nothing to do with gender. Well, you know, I, she, I, she ain't got a friend of me on this one, child. I'm not going to get dragged like I do every week, but I'm not going to get dragged defending Loretta Lynch. You on your own, sis, on defending the NFL. You could have turned that check down. So I don't want to hear nothing. Don't tag me in nothing. I don't want to hear you on your own. But we still have more to come. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. We'll be right back. Folks, Black Star Network is here. Hold no punches. I'm real uh, revolutionary right now. <laughs> Support this man, Black Media. He makes sure that our stories are told. I thank you for being the voice of Black America, Roland. Hey, Black, I love y'all. All momentum we have now. We have to keep this going. The video looks phenomenal. See, there's a difference between Black Star Network and Black-owned media and something like CNN. You can't be Black-owned media and be skate. It's time to be smart. Bring your eyeballs home. You dig? Hey, I'm Taj. I'm Coco. And I'm Lily. And we're SWV. What's up, y'all? It's Ryan Destiny, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Our beloved sister, Erica Savage Wilson, has been vocal and transparent about her journey to recovery after a traumatic brain injury last March. Her life has changed in many ways, but her spirit and determination remain strong. In January, she launched The Reframed Brain, a podcast that will focus on brain health tips and ways to cope with life after unseen injuries. She joins me now to talk about her podcast. Hey, sis. Hey, sis. How you doing? Good, good. It is so good to be with you. Before I get into anything, I got to give, you know, Dr. Carr, I got to give Dr. Carr a chance to say hey. So, Dr. <laughs> Carr, what you got? <laughs> we together. No, I'm just watching. Hey, I'm a fan. Uh, look, we got to throw the fist up. Come on, look. Come on, Terrain. Pump the That's fist, right. right? You got to join us. This is what we do. We do it on Thursday. <laughs> yes. Hey, look. I'm loving the podcast. I'm going to get out y'all's way so y'all can talk, but you know I love you. And if y'all haven't seen it, well, y'all about to talk about it. So, 
you you breaking it down, sis. Loving you. I'm, you make me want to get some plants, although I'm scared I'll kill them in here. So, but anyway, that's all good. <laughs> you know, listen. Oh Love uh, you, Greg. <laughs> I'm still not a hundred percent there on the plants. We're gonna talk about the plants, but you are very, very persuasive, Erica. So, Erica, uh, you are now on your second episode of the Reframe Brain. First, just give us some logistics. Where is your podcast streaming, appearing? How can people get in contact with it? And then give us a little bit more insight into what the purpose is and, and what you're discussing. Absolutely. But I would be remiss if I did not say you are doing an excellent job hosting Reese, pulling double duty, co-hosting earlier on Sirius XM View, Urban View, and then here on Roland Martin twice this week. So you're doing an excellent job, sis. Thank you for all you do to my big brother, Roland. Y'all, Roland texts or calls me at least two or three times a week. In a text, I can literally hear him screaming, you need anything? How you doing? <laughs> so um, thank you to Big Brother Roland, all the great things that he's doing. And of course, to my great friend, my dear heart, our living library, Greg Carr, Dr. Carr. Love him. He continues to give away his mind to us seven days a week. And want to send a shout out to Terrain. He's an incredible journalist. And so uh, say hello to that brother we haven't had an opportunity to meet. Um, the Reframe Brain podcast, so thank you for uh, kind of laying it out. The podcast was really uh, birthed out of the experience that I'm having now, having sustained, as I've shared with all of you all, um, this life-changing um, injury. I was traveling for work in March of 2021, uh, having came off of a general election work that my political uh, data, political consulting and data management firm had done. We'd also done work, senatorial work in Georgia, was rolling into COVID work, and I was actually headed to my home state of Georgia to continue that work when uh, on March 15th, about 11 o'clock in the morning, I was hit twice by an 18-wheel truck and I uh, went from a high-performing executive to what my brain practitioners told my family and um, my boyfriend that I was, um, they were dealing with a toddler at the time because my emotional state was very unpredictable because what had happened for folks that do have brain injuries, and this also speaks to people who are suffering with dementia and the debilitating and very traumatic disease known as Alzheimer's, uh, is that the root system um, for my uh, functioning, executive functioning part of the brain, that is the new brain, that frontal lobe, that root system had been damaged and compromised. Um, so a lot of what my response system was coming out of was from my amygdala. That's the reptilian, the old brain. That's the fight or flight. So everything around me was a threat because I had significant memory loss. I had uh, sustained injuries on my left side and the unseen injuries that I um, talk about, Reese, and then I go on later to discuss um, in my writings um, were also PTSD, anxiety, stress, a host of other things that are unseen, but they're very real in my life. And so because my life changed 180 degrees, um, the great medical team that I had surrounded me from the polytrauma unit to the mental health staff that I want to pause and say uh, some of the things that you've discussed uh, uh, throughout the show today are really strongly in line with what the podcast talks about. I have a psychiatrist. I have a neuropsychologist whose scholarship is in the brain and then also a therapist. The neuropsychologists and therapists meet with me weekly 
And so you're talking about a whole team of people that have been engaged in my life so that I can now come before you all and speak with you all. But there are um, a lot of tools and techniques that I use to sit before you all tonight. So what my podcast does is I have branded, I have branded myself a brain injury champion because I feel as though I have been able to have some of the healing leaps and bounds because of this um, incredible team that I have, and I'm still healing and recovering. It's not a finished work. But what I want to invite everyone, and that's the people who do not have a diagnosis, inviting people because we are all traversing a global pandemic. We are in the second year of a global pandemic that has worldwide killed over 5 million people. And in the United States alone, over 900,000 people have passed away due to this global pandemic. So what I am inviting people to is to understand brain health. Our brain is the most powerful and complex organ that we have. And because in the pandemic, there has been a rise, and these are um, statistics that you can look up on any um, mental health, the CDC, any of these sites, there has been an uptick of people that are suffering with anxiety, an uptick of people that are uh, managing through stress, depression, and the American Medical Association's new term, coronasomnia, which is because of the pandemic and insomnia, there has been an increased, um, uh, uh, an increased number of people that are suffering with insomnia during the pandemic coined the term coronasomnia. Because we have all of these different stressors, even if a person does not have a specific diagnosis, all of us have dealt with anxiety. We have dealt with some level of stress, perhaps some level of depression. And what is um, not spoken about, but is underlying, which is grief. Because even if we have not lost someone that we've known or loved dearly, just turning on the news and seeing those numbers and then everything else that is happening politically, everything that is happening around us with regards to the number of uh, how prices are going up in the grocery stores. And you all have talked about when you highlighted the CDC report an economic um, piece of that report. And what this show has been talking about, not only this week, but over the past few uh, months, over the past years, and talking about how grocery prices have gone up exponentially. We've seen grass, um, gas prices go up exponentially. Those are stressors that are really, really um, impacting every person, no matter what, um, how much money you're making, but especially those people who are struggling to make ends meet. So what the Reframe Brain podcast does is says that, listen, we understand that these are things that are affecting all of us. We want for you, that means the person on the other side of the this, this screen, to understand the power of your brain and to understand that now is the best time to understand how to take care of your brain and how to make sure that your brain is healthy because Black and African Americans overrepresent in the number of dementia mm -hmm. and Alzheimer's cases. We overrepresent in those places. And you and Terrain and Dr. Carr had a conversation. You all were talking about disparities in African American health when you were talking about that report. Okay, so now let's go to, and I want to warn everybody, this is a bit of a trigger warning because I am going to be talking about um, something that is a little bit difficult, but about suicide. We have seen 
um, largely in the news, and I don't want to repeat the names of those individuals or the families of those individuals, but we've seen people well-known who've had people that they know and love or people themselves who have died by suicide. We are 13.4% of the population as it relates to Black people, and that's including Hispanics that identify as Black. We represent 7.4% of suicide. 7.4%. That's over half of what we are as we relate to the population in this world. When we look at when we, we look at black and African American women and men, black men's suicide rates are four times that of black women. We are losing our black men to death by suicide. And then when we look at our babies, when we look at the youth, that the suicide rates are twice that of white youth, we have a problem. So looking at all the disparities, looking at how um, Terrain talked about this um, in the segment when you all were talking about the disparities in health, that black people don't go to the doctor. And I can relate myself as when I initially had to go to the doctor, that when I said um, initially that I said, I feel like I've had a couple of cocktails, and let me tell you what this white boy asked me. Have you? It was 11 o'clock in the morning. I had just been hit by an 18-wheel truck. That is what he had for me. Have you? That is medical racism. But let me tell you, I still persisted. There was no way in hell I was going to allow that to be the end of that because turned right around. And as you said, Reese, when you talked about black children who have better outcomes in the world when they um, are seen by black doctors, that it was a black woman doctor who said to me, no, ma'am, you have a traumatic brain injury and, 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 and she was the one that got my treatment course started. All of that to say, please do not allow what I have experienced, what I'm sure people to your left or your right to experience, to be your experience. There are things that you can do immediately right now to center and to um, begin to understand how is it that you can ensure that you are not represented in those disparities that I mentioned around dementia and Alzheimer's to make sure, okay, I do have difficulty sleeping and I'm not sure why. Do I have access to a primary care doctor? Okay, in the meantime, before I, if I don't have that access, what are some things that I can do within my own home, my environment, to create space where I'm able to sleep a little bit better? Perhaps call maybe a friend who might be in the same position that I'm in income-wise. If not, I can reach out to um, my local person that is in office. I can reach out to the Medicaid, Medicare office to find out how can I be seen so I can have lab work done? And so the Reframe Brain podcast really sits itself in saying these are some of the things that you can do to center your own brain health and perhaps unseen injuries that you didn't know about that you are suffering from and perhaps find some remedies for. And I um, share that. And then there will be other guests that will be coming on that will be medical practitioners, wellness experts that will be able to contribute as well. Well, I've listened to the first two episodes and I have to say I love it because it's really practical. You know, like for me, I'm not a person to be honest, I don't like a whole bunch of 
flowery language and inspirational quotes and, you know, woman empowerment type of stuff. Yeah, that's not really my zhuzh. And um, what I like is that, you know, for a person like me, I'm a little bit more like, I'm not organized, let me just say more methodical. And so you really give practical, like you can do this when you wake up or, you know, you give uh, insight into, for instance, like plants and the, the benefits of that. So talk a little bit about just the importance of giving people practical, easy to follow steps as opposed to trying to appeal maybe more to their emotional side and, and, and try to be a motivational speaker as opposed to a, a guide and a champion the way that you are. I love what you said, Reese, and I'm glad that you led with that because feelings are not facts. Mm -hmm. And yes, we do have the ability to emote, and it is a beautiful thing. It is what makes us human, but feelings are not facts. And that was that's one thing that I am repeatedly running into and learning in my own brain injury and coming to a place where I'm not moving up and down out of my amygdala. And some of those practical things that you talked about um, I will um, start with this. Um, for instance, in the morning, a lot of times in the morning, we wake up and immediately we reach for our phone. Well, one of the things I talk about on the Reframe Brain podcast is that when you wake up in the morning, your brain is just coming into a place of conscious. Like, I'm here, I'm awake, it's another day, I made it through this day. Use that opportunity to take one hand, put it on your heart, take another hand, put it on your belly, and you speak to yourself. You say to yourself, I'm very grateful that I'm here today. And one of the things that I do is I speak to every one of my organs. I tell my liver, I tell my kidneys, I tell my spleen. I'm not saying that it is an organ, but um, I tell my lungs. I say to my heart, I say to the arteries, I say to the capillaries, I say to enzymes, the cells. I thank them, I give them gratitude. And what that does for me is it is getting me to a space where I'm understanding that I am operating in a space that is telling my brain to start showering those um, endor those endorphins that make my brain come alive in a good way so that my perception of the way I see things is not as sharp as it would have been had I woke up, reached for my phone, and immediately gone into social media. And a lot of times the things that we see first on social media, particularly when you're a political voice, when you're mm -hmm. a voice of commentary as you are, as Dr. Greg, people are looking for certain things from Dr. Greg. They're looking for specific things from terrain. A lot of the times that things people are seeing are things that are going to get us upset or to get us activated or to get us anxious. So before we enter that space where we are going to be scrolling through all of the social media platforms, speak to yourself, create within yourself an environment of healing so that when you do engage, you're engaging with purpose, but you have already given yourself grace. You have already commanded who you are. You have already um, established what your day is going to be like. And so don't allow the news, don't allow the television, don't allow your phone or any other device to command or give direction to your day. The other thing that I talk about is something as simple as breath work. Taking breath is something that we do when we go and visit the doctor. They always tell us, take a deep breath in, take a deep breath out, and we usually do that three times. Do that within yourself, and what you will notice is that there will be a sense of um, gravity that will go throughout your body and really steal you in the moment. 
Another thing that you can do that is also very simple, um, I talk about yoga poses, and I'm going to have someone on that is um, uh, a certified yogi instructor that will go through very simple poses. It's nothing that you have to enter a class to do. There's something, some very simple poses that you can do in your bed, and they don't take 20, 30 minutes, five. Um, we're talking about two or three minutes for um, simple poses that actually do help your body, they help your spine, they help your posture. Um, another thing that I like to do is I like to keep my blinds open in the bedroom just a bit so that when I open up my eyes in the morning, guess what? The sun is kissing me. I mean, we got melanin <laughs> anyway. Why not go ahead and get a kick? Hello. So that, <laughs> okay, so why not have the sun tell you just how beautiful you are or go ahead and begin to give you the vitamins that you need so it's not, as you said, Reese, leaving, leading from a place that is saying um, that's giving you all of these things that are going to keep you in feeling. It is the fact of the matter. There is research and science that backs up what gratitude does for the brain. There's research and science that is backed up and what diaphragmatic breathing does for the body. Um, there is research and science because I keep um, a piece of fruit, a couple of pieces of fruit on my nightstand. When I wake up in the morning, I'm drinking water. That water is room temperature water, so my body doesn't have to do the work of a gladiator to start breaking it down. I am saying to my body without speaking, I love you. You are what carries me. You are what, you are my instrument. And I want to treat my instrument well. And so I'm going to have that water. I'm going to have that piece of fruit in the morning before a device can have any of my attention. Erica has all of Erica's attention because I am a believer. I'm going to repeat scripture over my body. I'm going to pray. So that is my practice. And so for a person, whatever your faith is, whatever those um, repetitions or whatever chants you do, do those things, pronounce those things over yourself so that in 20, 30 minutes, an hour, however long it is before you introduce or you come into the world fully as Terrain, fully as Greg, fully as Reese, fully as Roland, you have spent the most important part of your time, which is the beginning of your day, with you. And nobody can mess with that. And that's how we reframe the brain. So, to be clear, I know I said it's not all flowery language, but you are preaching a word, okay? So, don't, don't, don't get, viewers, don't get me wrong, Erica be preaching, okay? But she just preaches and she's practical at the same time. Before I go to the panel, though, I just want to mention this one word, this one concept that you talked about in your latest podcast, which was so powerful, and it was about forgiveness. And it was about forgiving yourself, because we are our own worst critics. We are in a pandemic, as you still point out. And a lot of us, and myself included, we beat ourselves up because we didn't get through our to-do list or maybe we are on our phone too much or any number of things. And I love what you said about forgiveness. I can't say it as good as you. So please, before I go to the panel, tell the viewers what you said about the podcast about forgiveness. Sure. So I believe, and this is Erica Savage-Wilson, this is not a gospel, I believe that forgiveness is one of the highest forms of healing. And just like okay. how we came into the world is a process, healing, um, forgiveness is a process as well. And so when I talk about that part about forgiveness, um, even me and myself and my own recovery, I have to be able to forgive myself for 
any number of things throughout the day. So again, that hand over heart, or even if I just sit, and this is one of my favorite chairs, I sit in this chair, and um, one of the things that I've learned um, through my therapy is around dropping my head. I don't drop my head, but I say to myself out loud, Erica, I literally forgive you for that thing. And that thing is not a defining moment, and it is well. And the way we get well is what I have said is one beautiful breath at a time. So for me, that high form of forgiveness, that level of forgiveness then opens up the environment for me to be forgiving of, and I'll share this with you all very briefly, um, one of the things that I do when I do go to the market, because I'm very, very strategic about how I do things, is I use self-checkout. I very rarely now use a checkout where I have to engage with another human. And so I was in the self-checkout line, I was checking out, um, and I have a very methodical way that I do it. And uh, I, I had checked out and the light was kind of blinking for another person to come up. And this white guy, he kind of like came like right up behind me and I was still putting my things in my cloth bag. Now, at that moment, what I was thinking because I had two bottles of ammonia was that I was going to take the cloth bag with the ammonia and swing it around and hit him with it. Um, and as my um, therapist had told me, you know, you have all the letters, TBI, PTSD, throw them out there. But I caught myself and I said to myself, he's, he doesn't know who he's messing with. He has no idea what a blessing it is for him to have been waiting behind me in line. I'm going to let this go. So I was like a duck. I let it shake off my day. Mm -hmm. and, and so that for me was extending forgiveness to a person who I don't know what he may have had on his mind. He may have been intentional about what he was doing. He may have been an insurrectionist. I mean, I don't know. But in that moment, I took time enough to say, let me allow that to, to fly off because I'm sure I'm going to need that same type of forgiveness for something that maybe was um, perceived in a way that I did not mean for it to be that way. So that kind of an example but forgiving yourself, doing that, making sure that that's something, even in your own practice before you go to bed at night, to say to yourself, and for this day, whatever it is that I'm trying to hold myself hostage to, I release myself. I will not be a prisoner of that thing. And I'm going to go to sleep, and I'm going to sleep well, and I'm going to dream well and move about until you go into the next day. Oh, that is beautiful. Release, y'all. Release. Y'all heard Erica. Okay, well, we have just like just a couple of minutes left. So, Terrain, I'm going to give you a question if you have one or comment for Erica. Well, first of all, Erica, this is my first time being familiar with your work, but I'm automatically a fan and I'm signing up for your podcast. So, don't have no fear of that. Um, what I want to say is it sounds like, first of all, what you're saying is beautiful. And I think what you're saying sounds a lot like what's happening. In this culture, this culture teaches you to burn yourself out. Mm. This culture teaches you to go nonstop, you know, get up, work out, get up, check your phone, run, do this, do that, do that, do that. And you have no time to really um, sit and center yourself and try to figure out how you can heal yourself and be mentally at peace with yourself. I'm an absolute victim of that. And I'll, I'll fully admit that I'm very bad at that. And I'm trying to learn how to get over that. But what I want to say is what just what you sounds like you're saying is something that's very organic and it's very ancestral because up until we got into this industrialized society, this is the way that people live their life. You know, you had a you had a strong family foundation. You had a um, an equilibrium with the earth. You had an equilibrium with the season. You had an equilibrium with the elements. 
And I think in this society, we've gotten away from that, especially as black people, because, you know, we were brought here to work, not to really work on our mentality, not to work on our physical and not definitely not our spiritual selves. So I think what you're saying is very, very important and is very necessary. And I just want to thank you for putting this out there. Thank you. Oh, and I thank you, Tarana. I'm so glad you brought that up. Thank you, because that's another thing that I talk about on the Reframe Brain, and it's available on YouTube. I'm very thankful you'll like and subscribe there. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, um, it's Amazon Music. It's on all those podcast forms as well, so you get the visual and the audio effect. But the grounding piece, because that's another thing that I talk about on the Reframe Brain, um, walking with your shoes off, um, on in your house, socks on, shoes off, but even if you can go outside in your backyard, if you do have access to a green space and staying grounded with the earth, and if not, the um, all of my plant babies that I have, um, I'm able to put my hands in the soil whenever I feel myself being overwhelmed, and I'm able to put my hands in the soil to stay grounded with the earth, or even if I'm not even to utter a word, just put my hands in that soil, and I immediately feel the overwhelm coming down from me. So I'm very grateful, brother, that you brought that up. Um, around the ancestral practices um, that we ourselves um, have to be um, really um, intentional about. And it is only because of this brain injury that I have been able to be as intentional as I have been. So I am very much so um, out of the um, lane of grind culture and into more of the appreciating life one beautiful breath at a time. So I really appreciate you, Tamarain. Dr. Carr, close us out. Oh no! I, listen, I'm just listening. I, look, are you telling? You see, when you said "don't look down," I had to look back up because I'm taking notes. You know, I'll be <laughs> writing notes, now, but I can watch the recording. I know everybody is. I, I'm just. I gotta echo what Terrain said. This is how we lived before, and you had me here putting my hand on my chest and my belly. And the notion of being kind to oneself. Um, I saw a glimpse of that uh, earlier, Erica. Though before before the trauma, when you say he's gonna take that bag and tighten that white boy up. <laughs> I know I miss Thursday nights. I miss, don't we miss a recent? I mean, yes, that's your yes. For <laughs> you, for real. But but I guess if I had a question, I think you you probably you've already answered it so many ways. But I'm just thinking about the you that we all know and love before what happened, and I'm thinking about us being in the studio and you and Reese and Avis and I mean you know the, the energy, the, the the camaraderie, the and then after this, is there anything that other than what you said, that you look back now and say, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I sat down, that I don't carry anymore. Because when I think about us all together physically, there was, as Trey said, this perpetual motion. But is there anything that you're saying now, I'm being kind to myself in a way, and, and I left that. I left that, I dropped it, and, I don't, and I'm just grateful for that. That is such a profound question. I'm so glad you asked me that, um, Greg, because there was a literal grieving of um, my old self because I died. And um, my therapy, neuropsychologist, therapist, psychiatrist helped me see that, that I literally died and there's this new person that, that has risen up. One of the things that I can say, and I think you all know, um, we're aware of this, my biological father, um, in 2020, um, began to suffer with dementia, didn't really have any idea of going on. So 2020 was a big, big year with the election, um, the senatorial election in Georgia. And then I was going, um, back and forth, um, to Atlanta. And so he is in the care of my sister and has been there for the past two years. Um, bless my sister, Kim Jones. And, um, 
one of the things that I'm grateful for that I will say is that um, though I was raised by my, my father, my daddy, um, who is not my biological father, I'm very grateful that in that time that I was kind to my biological father, who I still carry that namesake, Savage, Erica Savage, mm. because I did not know I was coming up the road and in March 2021 would be in this place where I would need the kindness of strangers, mm. where I would need people who had no idea who Erica Savage Wilson was to give me the kind of grace, the kind of love, the kind of kindness that I extended to the person who didn't essentially raise me, but he is the reason that I am here. And so I'm very grateful to God that I had forgiven that part of my life that I had made peace with my biological father. So when that call came in the middle of the pandemic to say, hey, this is what it is, I got on the plane. And then me and my sister got together and we talked and we prayed and we cried, but we made a commitment that we were going to give the grace and the love that the person who brought us into this world, so to speak, um, and any human being deserves, right? So that's why the things that you hear me echo in the reframe brain are lived things. So I would, um, to answer your question, I would have to say um, I'm grateful for that. And I am grateful for everything that I did before because it is absolutely the death and now the the person that I am have been transformed into everything that was before was a foundation for who I am now. And so the way that I'm able to talk about those people that try to come against me, that is because of the foundation of the Erica Savage Wilson that you all knew before. What is coming forward now you know, it's, it's something that is, I, I can't even begin to describe how wonderful and beautiful it is, it is, but it is because of those experiences that I had before. Well, Erica, <laughs> you are a gift and you are wonderful and you are beautiful and you are a blessing to us, the reborn you, the prior you, all of you, you have just blessed us so much and it's been an honor to have you here again. It's an honor to listen to your podcast again. It's the Reframe Brain. Tell people just one more time in case they missed it, how to keep in contact with you. Absolutely. So again, thank you. Thank you to my big brother, Roland. It was great to meet you, Terrain. Thank you always. I love you, G. I think you know that you are a living library, a genius, a luminary. And to my good sister, y'all know I love Reese. Don't fuck with Reese. I'm coming for you. <laughs> And I did drop that one little word. Don't mess with her. That is my sister. Don't mess with Reezy. Leave it alone. Okay. Don't do it. The Reframe Brain uh, podcast, you can um, find it on YouTube. It's the first and third Monday of every month. So it'll drop the first and third Monday of every month. There's an intention of why it's on Monday. So we're kicking out Monday blues. Um, But you can also find the Reframe Brain um, on wherever you get your podcast, Google Play, Apple Podcasts. And if you go to thereframebrain.com, you'll see everywhere it's available. And I have five best brain health tips. I also have a special playlist. And I have the newsletter that Reese um, talked about that has um, eight great ways to create an environment of healing. So go to the um, thereframebrain.com and you can get all of that info there. It takes about four or five seconds. 
Thank you, Erica. Thank you once again for Thank joining you. Before we go, here's a reminder for you HBCU juniors or seniors, time is running out for you to... Bye. Apply for that scholarship from Roland and McDonald's. If you attend an HBCU and Thurgood Marshall College Fund member institution, you can submit your application for the chance to receive a $15,000 scholarship. The deadline is February 28th. Go to tmcf.org for details on how to apply. Now, in addition to the free money scholarship, recipients will also have the opportunity to engage with McDonald's executives working within their respective fields of study. Well, that does it for us here at Roland Martin Unfiltered. I want to thank my panel, Dr. Avis Jones-DeWeaver, Dr. Greg Carr, Terrain Walker, and all of our guests. A big thank you to for joining us here on Roland Martin Unfiltered, streaming on the Black Star Network. If you haven't done it yet, download the Black Star Network on all your devices. You can download it on iPhone TV, Apple TV, Android, Android TV, Roku, Fire TV, Xbox One, and Samsung Smart TV. If you would like to support us so we can continue bringing you the stories that matter to us, then donate on Cash App. It's dollar sign RM Unfiltered. PayPal is RM Unfiltered. Venmo, RM Unfiltered. Zell, Roland S. Roland S. Martin Unfiltered. I am Reese Covert. Ray Baker will be joining with you tomorrow. Have a great night. Holla. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.